Hello, my name is Sarah Nouwen. I'm a reader in international law at the University of Cambridge, soon moving to the European University Institute in Florence to take up a chair in public international law there. It is a great honor to have been invited to give this lecture on complementarity for the United Nations Audiovisual Library of International Law. The fact that the lecture is for an audiovisual library of international law immediately makes clear that I will be not talking about complementarity in physics, biology, or music, areas in which complementarity also plays a role, but is not relevant for us. Context matters. My argument today is that even within the world of international law, indeed, even within the smaller world of international criminal justice, indeed, even within the specific world of the International Criminal Court, the first international criminal court with complementary jurisdiction to that of national courts, Complementarity has meant different things in different contexts. The main reason for this is that complementarity is both a big idea, a concept about where international crimes are ideally prosecuted as a matter of global governance, and a term of art for a technical admissibility rule in the Rome Statute that provides that the court may exercise its jurisdiction over a case only if that case is not being, or has not been, genuinely investigated or prosecuted by a state. Now the two, the big idea and the technical admissibility rule, are connected. The admissibility rule gives effect to the big idea. Indeed, it is hard to identify the meaning of complementarity as a matter of law outside of the rules that give effect to it. In legal proceedings, the ICC must implement its statute, not big ideas. However, complementarity as a big idea continues to do work as a rhetorical concept, independent from the technical admissibility rule. It does so in scholarship that explains and orders the world, but also in policy statements, press releases and assembly halls where diplomats, politicians, NGOs, scholars and ICC officials discuss the relationship between international courts and domestic courts in the prosecution of international crimes. I have elsewhere called this simultaneous life of complementarity as technical admissibility rule and as a big idea, the double life of complementarity. Some have interpreted this as a pejorative label, but that is not intended. Rather, the aim is to say be aware of context. If you wish to challenge admissibility of a case, complementarity as a big idea, independent of the legal rules that give effect to it, is not likely to be successful. But in, say, an argument before the UN Security Council or in the Assembly of States Parties to the Rome Statute, complementarity as a big idea may actually have more purchase than complementarity, the technical admissibility rule. Similarly, when states are told that they have to do something because of complementarity, they may wish to check whether this is due to a legal obligation in the Rome Statute or more inspired by complementarity as a big idea and is therefore perhaps more a political shoot rather than a legal must. The remainder of this lecture consists of three parts. The next part will introduce complementarity as a big idea. The subsequent part will cover complementarity as a technical admissibility rule in the Rome Statute, focusing on the substantive elements of the rule. 
the procedural elements of complementarity I will leave for another lecture. In the conclusion, I will highlight how, due to the developing case law on complementarity, complementarity as a big idea and complementarity as a technical admissibility rule seem to have grown further and further apart. So here we go. We begin with complementarity as a big idea. Complementarity fits the garb of a big idea because it reflects the shift in thinking as to where international crimes are ideally prosecuted. When the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court was signed in 1998, it was agreed that, like its immediate predecessors, the ICC would have jurisdiction that is concurrent with that of national jurisdictions. Thus, neither tr the tribunals for the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda, nor the International Criminal Court, were given exclusive jurisdiction over the crimes in their statutes. But precisely because of that concurrency, a priority rule was needed for those instances in which both the International Court or Tribunal and a national jurisdiction wished to exercise jurisdiction. Providing for such a priority rule, the UN Security Council had given the ad hoc tribunals primacy of jurisdiction, as a result of which they were, in broadly defined circumstances, empowered to oblige domestic justice systems to defer to the tribunal's competence. In its Tadic judgment in 1995, the appeals chamber of the ICTY had argued that international tribunals, and now I quote, must be endowed with primacy over national court, courts, unquote. It defended this on the ground that, and here I quote again, otherwise, human nature being what it is, there would be a perennial danger of international crimes being characterized as ordinary crimes, or proceedings being designed to shield the accused, or cases not being diligently prosecuted, unquote. However, Three years later, and without an apparent change in human nature, states signed off on the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which provided the ICC would be complementary to national jurisdictions, thus giving states, and not the International Court, the primary right to investigate and prosecute the crimes within its jurisdiction. Now, in the negotiations on the Rome Statute, three conceptually different reasons were advanced for the shift from primacy to complementarity. Least dominant of those was the argument that complementarity protects the rights of the accused. More often mentioned was the comparative practical advantage of domestic proceedings, because domestic jurisdictions, at least those jurisdictions in the territory of which the crimes were committed, are closer to the evidence. And when combined, when all these domestic jurisdictions are combined, together they have much more capacity than that one international court. But the principled argument for complementarity was state sovereignty. As Frederick McGrath has argued, and I quote, although crime is obviously something that societies are keen to eliminate, it is also curiously something about which they feel a strong sense of ownership, especially when competing claims for jurisdiction arise, unquote. States had to be convinced to ratify the Rome Statute, a consideration that did not concern the drafters of the statutes of the ICTY and the ICTR, since these tribunals were established by Security Council resolutions, binding on all UN member states. Complementarity earned its cornerstone status by seemingly reconciling international criminal justice with state sovereignty.
and thus making agreement on the statute, a treaty, possible. Now, as a consequence of being considered a cornerstone, a foundational principle of the statute, in other words, being a big idea, complementarity is often invoked to found theories of an ideal division of responsibilities between domestic and international jurisdictions. But it is not just scholars who have developed and relied on complementarity as big idea. So have court officials. Whereas in the courtroom, in legal proceedings, ICC officials primarily invoke complementarity, the admissibility rule, outside the courtroom, in the context of interactions with states, they too invoke complementarity as big idea. The most notable direction in which the Office of the Prosecutor has taken the big idea of complementarity is as the basis of a policy that is called positive complementarity. The term positive complementarity has itself meant different things in different contexts and at different times. At times, the emphasis has been on the Office of the Prosecutor, and now I quote, rather than competing with national systems for jurisdiction, encouraging national pr proceedings wherever possible, unquote. <clears throat> Here the emphasis is on encouraging states to use the primary right protected by complementarity. The Assembly of States Parties, for its part, has adopted this idea of positive complementarity, although focusing on the question what states, rather than the ICC itself, can do to strengthen domestic justice systems. Unlike complementarity, the admissibility rule, positive complementarity here is just a program of action. Note, however, that such a program of action is not necessarily limited to international criminal courts whose exercise of concurrent jurisdiction is regulated by the principle of complementarity. Courts with primary jurisdiction could also have a policy to foster domestic proceedings, and in fact have had such policies. It is thus that some have spoken of positive complementarity by the ICTY, even though the ICTY had primacy of jurisdiction. At other times, positive complementarity has been more understood as a policy of cooperation between a state and the ICC in the joint project of fighting impunity. And in other words, the emphasis has been on positive relations between the ICC and states. Note, though, that this strategy of cooperation can in fact have the opposite effect of encouraging domestic proceedings. It has sometimes been argued that it is in the interest of the fight against impunity to encourage states to hand over cases to the ICC, which is the opposite of encouraging states to do it themselves. Over time, the OTP, the Office of the Prosecutor, has begun to make fewer references to positive complementarity, preferring instead a positive approach to complementarity, but imbuing that notion with a slightly different meaning than how it used to phrase initially. Rather than focusing on ways in which the office can help domestic proceedings, the emphasis has been on looking positively at the principle of complementarity as incorporated in the Rome Statute. This effectively means giving states a chance to investigate and prosecute, but it doesn't go far beyond it. In this understanding, the notion of a positive approach to complementarity becomes simply acting in accordance with the principle of complementarity in the Rome Statute. Thus understood, the Office of the, Pro the Prosecutor should probably have a policy of, positive, of a positive approach to all provisions in the Rome Statute. 
Now, concluding the part on complementarity as a big idea, three features are worth highlighting, since they stand out as being different from complementarity, the admissibility rule. First, in complementarity as big idea, complementarity is often understood in its literal rather than its legal meaning. Literally, to complement means to add to something, to contribute to something. Thus, in the context of international criminal justice, the International Criminal Court complements domestic justice systems. Together, they make the system whole. It is in this literal understanding that the Office of the Prosecutor has sometimes used complementarity to advocate for a division of labor, according to which the ICC deals with the cases involving those bearing the greatest responsibility, while domestic justice systems handle only the less serious cases. Complementarity as big idea, this often focuses on the global level or on the level of a situation as a whole, in which both domestic courts and the International Criminal Court have a role to play. However, as we will see shortly, complementarity as an admissibility rule is a priority level that applies at a level of cases. If there are competing claims to jurisdiction in a specific case, either the ICC can go ahead or it has to defer to domestic proceedings. There is no doing it together in this specific case. Moreover, and contrary to the division of labor rhetoric, complementarity, the admissibility rule, gives states primacy even in the cases of those most responsible. Secondly, complementarity as a big idea is often presented as a model of global governance, according to which states do not just have the primary right to investigate and prosecute crimes within the ICC's jurisdiction, but they also have a responsibility a duty or even obligation to that effect. Some have gone even further, arguing that complementarity entails a responsibility, duty, obligation, not just to investigate and prosecute as such, but also to invest and prosecute the same international crimes as opposed to ordinary crimes, and in the same manner in terms of procedure and punishments as the ICC. As we will see in a moment, these obligations are actually difficult to find in the Rome Statute. Thirdly, and perhaps most noticeably, complementarity as a big idea has become more famous than the provisions setting forth the admissibility rule in the Rome Statute. Complementarity is generally known by its popular shorthand definition, according to which the court may exercise its jurisdiction when a state is unwilling or unable to do so. This shorthand definition suggests that complementarity turns on an assessment of a state's willingness and ability, possibly of the entire justice system of that state. But this understanding fundamentally deviates from how complementarity works as an admissibility rule, to which we turn now. So let's now turn to complementarity, the technical admissibility rule in the Rome Statute. Now, it's quite remarkable that the Rome Statute actually does not include the term complementarity per se. And yet, it does reflect its foundational status. Both the preambular recital and the statute's very first article, the article in which the court is actually established, emphasize that the court shall be complementary to national criminal jurisdictions. 
without referring to the term complementarity, Article 17, titled Issues of Admissibility, then gives content to the principle through an admissibility rule. Careful reading of Article 17 immediately reveals that the shorthand definition by, complementarity, by which complementarity as a big idea is popularly known is not an accurate reflection of complementarity, the admissibility rule. As Daryl Robinson has argued, the shorthand definition ignores 55 relevant words in Article 17. Because before mentioning ability and willingness, Article 17, paragraph 1, first provides that the court shall determine that a case is inadmissible where that case is being investigated or prosecuted, has been investigated, or has already been tried. The references to ongoing and concluded proceedings reveal that if there is no state investigating or prosecuting the case, or no state which has done so, none of the criteria of inadmissibility can be satisfied. In the absence of ongoing or concluded national investigations or prosecutions, therefore, cases are admissible before the ICC without the need for any determination of a state's willingness or ability. Quote, to do otherwise would be to put the cart before the horse, unquote, according to the ICC Appeals Chamber in Gatanga, correcting the pretrial chamber. Only when domestic investigations or prosecutions are being or have been conducted is it necessary in any given case to determine whether the state concerned is or was willing and able to carry out these proceedings in a genuine fashion. In practice, in the majority of ICC decisions addressing complementarity so far, the court reasoned that the cases before it were admissible in the simple absence of domestic proceedings. There was thus no willingness or ability in any specific procedures to assess. However, in order to reach the conclusion of domestic inaction, no proceedings, the court had to engage with the meaning of the seemingly, seemingly quotidian terms case, and to a lesser extent, the meaning of the word investigated. So let's discuss these terms in turn and begin with the requirement of an investigation. The statute does not define what kinds of investigation render cases inadmissible before the ICC. However, by referring to an investigation concluded by a decision not to prosecute, Article 17.1b suggests that investigations must have the potential to be followed by prosecution. Moreover, Article 1 provides that the ICC shall be complementary to national criminal jurisdictions. Thus, read in this context, investigation in Article 17 probably does not cover investigations by commissions of inquiry that can only recommend that other bodies then further investigate with a view to prosecution. What amounts to the opening of a criminal investigation varies from legal system to legal system. But in the cases of both Ruto and Simone Bakbo, the appeals chamber said it requires taking of steps to ascertain whether the person is responsible for the elected conduct and that such steps may include interviewing witnesses or suspects, collecting documentary evidence, or carrying out forensic analyses. 
In terms of evidentiary standard, the appeals chamber has accepted the prosecutor's view that the government must support its statement with tangible proof to demonstrate that it is actually carrying out relevant investigations. So thus far, the meaning and what is required in order to show what an investigation is for the purposes of Article 17. Now let's turn to that other word, the seemingly very easy word, case. At first sight, it does not appear correct to say that in the first cases before the court, there was simply no domestic proceedings, and the court therefore did not have to address ability and unwillingness. Indeed, even the first suspect before the court, Thomas Lubanga, had been subject to some form of domestic proceedings. When the pretrial chamber assessed admissibility as part of a decision on whether or not to issue an arrest warrant, Lubanga was already detained in the Democratic Republic of the Congo on charges of crimes against humanity, genocide, murder, illegal detention and torture. But according to the pretrial chamber, it was, and now I quote, a conditio sine qua non for a case arising from the investigation of a situation to be admissible, that the national proceedings encompassed both the person and the conduct which is the subject of the case before the court." Unquote. The Congolese proceedings concerned the same person, Thomas Lubanga, but according to the chamber, not the same conduct. Whilst the domestic charges included genocide and crimes against humanity, they did not include the one and only crime on the basis of which the ICC prosecutor brought charges, namely the war crime of enlisting, conscripting and using child soldiers. Comparing the charges, the chamber held that the DRC cannot be considered to be acting in relation to the specific case before the court, the case concerning the use of child soldiers. Since it found that no other state with jurisdiction was acting or had acted in relation to that case, the pretrial chamber considered Lubanga's case admissible before the ICC. And other pretrial chambers have adopted the same approach, for instance in Katanga, Kushe, Harun. The appeals chamber has affirmed the same person, same conduct test in the Kenya situation. It said the same case required substantially the same conduct, but it didn't explain whether and if so how substantially qualifies the requirement of same conduct. It may try to cover the fact that a successful admissibility challenge requires domestic investigations into a prosecution of the same conduct, not necessarily the same crime. The reference to conduct rather than crime in Article 20, Paragraph 3, indicates that deference should be accorded to states' legal characterization of the impugned behavior. In the words of the Appeals Chamber in Gaddafi and al-Sanusi, and I quote, it is the alleged conduct, as opposed to its legal characterization, that matters. Unquote. Thus, domestic prosecution of the same conduct and incident as 500 counts of murder, as opposed to, as opposed to the ICC crime such as genocide by killing, should still make a case inadmissible before the ICC. The Rome Statute deviates in this respect from the respective statutes of the ICTY and the ICTR, which explicitly allow the tribunals to retry a case if the conduct has been prosecuted domestically as an ordinary crime, 
rather than as an international crime. That said, while the same conduct may not require the same legal qualification, the Appeals Chamber also indicated, in the case of Gaddafi and al-Sanusi, that the same conduct requirement involves not just the same conduct in the sense of the same behavior, torture, killing, etc., but also that the domestic proceedings must sufficiently mirror the incidents, an incident being described as a historical event defined in time and place, in the course of which crimes within a jurisdiction of the court were allegedly committed by one or more direct perpetrators. In other words, if a state investigates Mrs. Y for, say, killing in the villages A, B, C, D and E, but the ICC investigates the same Mrs. Y for killing, for killing in villages F, G and H, the case can be still admissible before the ICC because the domestic case does not overlap in terms of incidents and therefore does not amount to the same case. Now we will turn to evaluating this case law in the final part of this lecture. But let's first finish the brief overview of complementarity, the technical admissibility rule. So it is only where domestic proceedings have been initiated in the same case, and I have just explained that threshold of the same case is pretty high, that the question of willingness and ability arises. Where a state has initiated relevant proceedings in the same case, the case is nonetheless admissible before the ICC if the state is unwilling or unable generally to carry out investigation or prosecution, or its decision not to prosecute resulted from the unwillingness or inability of the state generally to prosecute. The emphasis of this test is not on being able and willing, because the scene would seem to be so, given the fact that the proceedings are actually taking place, or have taken place, but on the requirement that the proceedings be conducted genuinely. The three listed indicators of unwillingness in Article 17, Paragraph 2, confirm that is what is at issue is unwillingness to conduct genuine proceedings. In all three circumstances, it is the lack of an intent to bring the person concerned to justice that undermines the genuineness. This is implicit in the first circumstance, namely proceedings, and I'll quote, made for the purpose of shielding the person concerned from criminal responsibility, unquote. It is sufficient to establish that the purpose is to shield the person from being held criminally responsible, irrespective of whether there are defensible reasons for that shielding. For instance, an official decision not to prosecute, as in Article 171b, in exchange for the participation of that person in peace negotiations. The second and third situations mention the lack of intent explicitly. The absence of the intent to bring to justice need not be positively proven, but can be inferred from an unjustified delay or lack of impartiality and independence, seemingly inconsistent with such an intent. Article 17, paragraph 3, provides criteria for the determination of inability genuinely to conduct proceedings. It obliges the court to consider both the causes and the consequences of inability to investigate and prosecute. As to causes, the provision mentions a total or substantial collapse or unavailability of its national system. As regards the consequences thereof, the provision is more open textured. 
the expression otherwise unable to carry out its proceedings allows the court to determine that a state is unwilling or sorry is unable to investigate or prosecute in situations other than that of an ability to obtain the accused or the necessary evidence. The first two of the listed scenarios for inability to conduct genuine proceedings, namely total or substantial collapse of the national judicial system, are the most obvious. In such situations, it is unlikely that any proceedings will have taken place, obviating the need for an assessment of their genuineness. However, if proceedings do take place, the state may not be able to conduct them genuinely, as evidenced by its being unable to obtain the accused or the necessary evidence and testimony, or otherwise unable to carry out its proceedings. Now, were these the only scenarios for inability to conduct genuine proceedings, states could be found unable to do so only in exceptional circumstances. However, the third scenario for such inability, namely the unavailability of a national judicial system, expands the scope of the provision considerably and reveals the decisiveness of this factor of genuineness. Not only practical circumstances, for instance, a lack of judicial personnel, an insecure environment, or a lack of essential cooperation by other states, but also normative factors can render a system unavailable genuinely to conduct proceedings. Examples of such normative factors are the applicability of amnesty or immunity laws, the lack of the necessary extradition treaties, and the absence of jurisdiction under domestic law. In many of these situations, it would be far-fetched to argue that the domestic justice system as such is unavailable. But in the particular case, the system would be unavailable to conduct proceedings genuinely. Consequently, states with fully-fledged and fully-functioning criminal justice systems can still be found unable, provided that, in the particular case, the system is unavailable genuinely to conduct proceedings. In the third situation of inadmissibility, namely when the person investigated or prosecuted by the ICC has already been tried by another court, the requirement of genuineness is implicit in the two exceptions to the prohibition of maybes in idem. These exceptions are nearly identical to two of the circumstances that evince unwillingness generally to prosecute as defined in Article 17, Paragraph 2. Inability to conduct the proceedings generally, however, is no longer an exception to inadmissibility of a case before the ICC once a domestic trial has been concluded. Thus, for states that want to challenge admissibility, it may be more attractive to wait until a domestic trial has ended before challenging it to the extent that the procedural law on complementarity allows this. Now, after having said what the statute considers necessary for genuine proceedings, it should be stressed what the statute does not list as indicators of the absence of genuine proceedings. First, as is apparent from the limited exception to the prohibition neighbors in idem embodied in Article 23 of the statute, a case which has resulted in an acquittal insignificant punishment or an immediate pardon is not by definition admissible before the ICC. It must be proved that the proceedings were vitiated from the outset by a lack of genuineness, or more precisely, 
by the absence of an intent to bring to justice, which can be evinced by shielding or a lack of independence and impartiality. But it is not easy to prove after the trial the absence at the beginning of the proceedings of such an intent. Secondly, nor is the violation of the accused's right to a fair domestic trial an independent ground on which the ICC may or must find a case admissible. A lack of independence and impartiality may be grounds for admissibility only if the cumulative requirement that they be inconsistent with an intent to bring the person concerned to justice is fulfilled. A lack of independence and impartiality will be inconsistent with an intent to bring to justice only if it has worked to the benefit of the accused. Or, in the words of the appeals chamber in Gaddafi and al-Sanusi, if the violations of the rights of the suspect are so egregious that the proceedings can no longer be regarded as being capable of providing any genuine form of justice to the suspect. In other words, the ICC is not a human rights court. Having said what the criteria of unwillingness and inability do not include, it is worth highlighting, by way of ending the discussion of the law related to complementarity, three popular assumptions that do not survive analysis of the Rome Statute. First, neither complementarity nor any other provision of the Rome Statute creates a duty on states to investigate and prosecute. While states may be under an obligation to investigate or prosecute pursuant to other rules of international law, the principle of complementarity itself establishes no such legal duty. The statute's only provision explicitly referring to a relevant duty of states is the sixth preambular recital, recalling that it is the duty of every state to exercise its criminal jurisdiction over those responsible for international crimes. But considering the ordinary meaning of the text, the context, and the treaty's object and purpose, it is apparent that this recital does not create an obligation. Secondly, states parties are not required to adopt so-called implementing legislation to ensure that the crimes within the ICC's jurisdiction are crimes under domestic law. The Rome Statute requires only that national law facilitate cooperation with the court and criminalize offenses against the ICC's administration of justice. For those states that wish to avoid ICC intervention by taking advantage of complementarity, incorporation of the Rome Statute's crimes into domestic law is necessary only to the extent that existing domestic law does not cover all the conduct within the ICC's jurisdiction, since it suffices for a successful complementarity challenge to charge the relevant conduct as ordinary crime. Now, many of the actus rei of the crimes within the ICC's jurisdiction will be already criminalized in ordinary penal law. But conduct such as recruitment of child soldiers, treatment of prisoners of war, and modes of liability such as command responsibility could well require criminalization. Of course, states are free to, and actually have strong normative reasons, to incorporate all Rome statute crimes in domestic law, and many have indeed done so. Finally, the statute does not contain any prohibition on amnesties or any obligation on states that is irreconcilable with the use of amnesties. 
This fits with the character of the statute more generally, namely to regulate only the conduct of the court and the cooperation of states with the court. The statute is silent on what states should or should not do independent of the court. For the court, the implication of this silence on amnesties that is, is that it is not legally bound to respect any amnesty measures. Amnesty laws usually derive their legal force solely from domestic law, which is not part as such of the ICC's applicable law. For states, the statute silence means that use of amnesties does not amount to a violation of the Rome Statute. They could, of course, be in violation of treaties that do oblige them to investigate, prosecute and punish. That said, the Rome Statute generally, and complementarity specifically, could have a discouraging effect on the use of amnesties. For instance, states could refrain from using amnesties because amnesties obstruct domestic proceedings, thus inhibiting states from avoiding or ending ICC involvement by using their primary right to investigate and prosecute pursuant to the principle of complementarity. It is time to conclude. In concluding, I would like to focus on the most significant areas in which complementarity is a big idea, you know, the way complementarity is presented in political and diplomatic speeches, documents, and also in some theoretical scholarship on the one hand. And on the other hand, complementarity as this technical admissibility rule in the Rome Statute are in a way very different. On the one hand, the Rome Statute is less demanding than some of the big idea rhetoric on complementarity suggests. It does not create obligations on states to investigate and prosecute. It does not require states to criminalize the crimes in Article 5 in their domestic legislation. It does not prohibit amnesties. And for successful admissibility challenge on the ground of complementarity, it is not necessary to prosecute conduct as international crimes or to meet all international fair trial standards. More generally, in the Rome Statute, Complementarity governs the admissibility of cases before the ICC. It does not contain so-called complementarity obligations for states. On the other hand, complementarity as admissibility rule in the Rome Statute is far more demanding than what the rhetoric about complementarity as big idea suggests. Complementarity as big idea is about whether a state is doing something to address impunity at a domestic level. Perhaps characteristic of a big idea, it is not interested in the details of who exactly gets investigated and prosecuted and for what. However, we have seen that the court has interpreted complementarity the admissibility rule as requiring the same person, the same conduct, and to a large extent the same incidence for a case to be considered the same case as the ICC's and therefore be rendered admissible, inadmissible on grounds of complementarity. Now the consequence of this same person, same conduct, same incident test is that a state cannot be sure that the ICC will end its involvement in a case or refrain from opening a case unless the state selects not only the same person but also the same factual conduct and incidents that form, or could form, the subject of a case before the ICC. Once the prosecutor has brought a case before the court, the domestic justice system that wishes to render that case inadmissible must copy 
the ICC's case in terms of person, conduct and incidents. It is even more difficult for the state that wishes to avoid ICC involvement and therefore begins investigations and prosecutions prior to the ICC prosecutor's formulation of a case. That state must engage in the precarious exercise of predicting which person, conduct, incidents the ICC prosecutor would choose if he or she were to become involved. As Kevin Heller has argued, the same conduct requirement expects states to be mind readers. Unquote. If it turns out that the ICC prosecutor focuses on different conduct, incidents, the ICC's case will be admissible on grounds of inaction of the state, no matter how much that state has investigated or prosecuted. As the Lubanga case illustrates, even if the domestic proceedings focus on conduct that constitutes the basis of charges of genocide or crimes against humanity, the ICC's case will still be admissible as long as it involves only one type of conduct not covered by the domestic proceedings. In Lubanga's case, the charges of war crimes related to child soldiers, including where the ICC's charges are arguably less serious than the domestic charges. A state can thus guarantee avoiding or ending ICC involvement only by investigating all possible persons, conduct and incidents. Since if the ICC prosecutor wishes to pursue a case, he or she can always achieve it by intentionally selecting persons, conduct and incidents that have not been covered by domestic proceedings. Once the court's jurisdiction has been triggered, the state that wishes to avoid or end ICC involvement thus loses all prosecutorial discretion. The ICC prosecutor, by contrast, has in practice total discretion in his or her decision which person, conduct or incident to charge. Now, the inequality in discretion between, on the one hand, the ICC prosecutor and state prosecutors is difficult to square with any idea of primacy of domestic justice systems. However, as has been argued from the outset, complementarity as a legal principle, as opposed to the big idea complementarity, exists only to the extent it is set forth in the Rome Statute. If the erosion of any domestic prosecutorial discretion is a consequence of the way that complementarity is set forth in the Rome Statute, it is still a consequence of complementarity even if difficult to reconcile with any idea one might have of complementarity being intended as primacy of domestic justice systems. The question is thus whether the statute indeed requires the same conduct test in its strict interpretation of requ requiring the same acts and the same factual allegations. Now, Kogan textual and contextual arguments have been put forward in defense of the same conduct test. First, the same person, same conduct requirement is explicit in a Nabis and Idem scenario. Secondly, the structure of Article 90, an article in the part of the Statute of Cooperation, suggests that admissibility can be challenged only if the case involves the same conduct. The statute provides far fewer grounds for a same incident test. One argument is that for the purposes of Nabis and Idem in domestic criminal law, there usually is no Idem, if the suspect, A or B, the conduct, murder or rape, the date, the 1st or the 2nd of January, the 
the place, village C or village D, and the victims, victim E or victim F, are not identical. If I go here in the streets of Cambridge and kill one person on Cranmer Road and another in Herschel Road, there is still impunity if I am prosecuted only for the crime committed in Cranmer Road. But the question is whether the domestic situation is analogous. In the context in which domestic criminal law is ordinarily applied, namely in situations in which crime is the exception, the same conduct and the same incident test can be fulfilled relatively easily. The tests are, however, more difficult to fulfill in the context in which, the most, in which most international crimes take place, namely in situations in what Rod Raston has called a universe of criminality. In such circumstances, it will often be virtually impossible for any justice system, whether domestic or international, to investigate and prosecute all incidents of crime. From an exclusive anti-impunity perspective, this is precisely why the court was established, to eradicate every remnant of impunity. This vision refuses to acknowledge that a state may have other legitimate interests, for instance legal certainty, that require some domestic discretion or avoidance of or end to ICC involvement. In this approach, complementarity protects sovereignty only to the extent that the state joins the ICC in the fight against impunity as it has defined it. Sovereignty is subjected to international criminal justice. However, the object and purpose of complementarity, as opposed to the object and purpose of the Rome Statute as a whole, provide an argument in favor of a less strenuous same person, same conduct, same incident test. The early case law, public statements and the literature explained complementarity as a principle balancing sovereignty and international criminal justice. But given that the focus of the statute as a whole is the promotion of international criminal justice, the object and purpose of complementarity specifically must be to protect sovereign interests in the wider context of the pursuit of international criminal justice. Thus understood, the principle recognizes that states that join the anti-impunity struggle can have interests that do not always entirely coincide with the pursuit of international criminal justice at the international level. For example, a state may have an interest in the assurance that if it genuinely investigates and prosecutes crimes within the court's jurisdiction, it does not risk ICC involvement. Such assurance can be essential for the success of a peace negotiation. A state, relying to, or a state trying to grapple with a past of mass atrocity may also need legal certainty about which crimes and which crimes will not be prosecuted. In most scenarios of mass atrocity, the same conduct test will prevent the state from achieving this certainty, because there are always other incidents, conduct and conduct that the ICC prosecutor could charge in the situation that there is this universe of criminality. One could just argue that the object and purpose of complementarity, a principle purposely inserted into the statute to protect state sovereignty, thus requires an interpretation of the word case 
that gives some deference to prosecutorial choices of the domestic justice system. Such deference would also show some international humility, a recognition that selectivity usually is a feature of judicial responses to mass atrocity, whether domestic or international, and that the international selection is not by definition superior. Now this controversy is likely to continue. But in the meantime, anyone engaging with complementarity should try to ascertain whether in the specific context complementarity is used as a big idea or as a technical admissibility rule. As I've tried to argue, the difference can be significant.